Hello and welcome to another episode of African Joe Paddy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Crail in Scotland. Hello and this is Dihia, the co-host of African Joe Paddy and I'm recording from Vancouver in Canada. Today we will be talking about pandemics and disaster management in Africa and we have an amazing guest to talk about this with us today. We're really honored to have Dr. Michael Adikunli Charles with us. He's a seasoned diplomat and an international development professional with over 18 years experience providing technical, managerial and operational support to field and country offices for the Red Cross, as well as for public and private sectors. He's a medical doctor with a master's degree in public health from the University of Heidelberg and Bielefeld in Germany, respectively. He also has a diploma in humanitarian diplomacy with over, with over 15 years of resident working experience in Africa. He has engaged with government authorities at various levels in over 30 countries of the African continent. Currently, he is the head of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Southern Africa delegation based in Pretoria in South Africa. So please join us in welcoming Dr. Charles. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, thank you very much, Dihir and Ife. I'm really, really excited um, to speak around the, the topic of pandemics and disaster management on the continent. Thank you for being here. So, I mean, normally we would go on to try to explain what the central theme for today's talk is all about. But given that you're the expert and you have all the experience in terms of your field experience and also the experience that you have, given that you've studied this for so long, we would want to go straight on to ask you the first question, which is, what was your experience of the Ebola pandemic in West Africa and how does that compare to COVID? Yeah, great. I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, we need to you know, look at the definitions of pandemics and epidemics. Um, so a pandemic, you know, from the scientific um, perspective is when there's an infectious outbreak um, that spreads, spreads all over the world globally. Um, so a, an epidemic, it is when it spreads within a community, a country or a few countries. So, you know, scientifically, we would say that the Ebola outbreak in 2014 um, that hit Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, and um, to some extent Nigeria, that's more of an epidemic um, because it's more contained um, to a geographic location, although that geographic location affected a few countries. Nonetheless, I think, you know, the, the response is the same. You know, we need to ensure that we have good hygiene protocols in place to stop further infections. Um, for COVID, obviously that is more global and that is why we call it a pandemic. And really that's a pandemic that we haven't seen at this scale since the Spanish flu of, 20, of, of, of um, 1917, 1918, where it again spread across the world. I think similarly, another pandemic that we can look at in recent times is the avian influenza, um, which was in 2009. And I think WHO declared that also a pandemic, but luckily that didn't really spread um, for too long and it wasn't sustained for a longer period of time. As I said, nonetheless, as, as, as the International Red Cross movement, our focus is really at community level. And when we talk about pandemics, epidemics, 
it is really looking at the source, looking at the community level, looking at the rural areas, looking at the urban areas. And we as the International Red Cross through our national societies, and we have 192 national societies, meaning we're present in 192 countries. We really work at the community level to try to bring um, support, guidance, behavioral change, um, information um, to the people and really supporting them through the, the various crises. And this pandemic has really shown that it is definitely worth investing in preparedness. It is worth investing in local organizations, local, um, local entities, um, because really, really, you know, they are there before the pandemic or the epidemic. They are there during it and they'll be there afterwards. Um, and that is really the motto of the Red Cross. We're always there and we never leave. And you know, that has been our experience with pandemics, epidemics, that it is so important that we're close to the action and we continue to provide the needed support. Um, in Ebola, it was really focused on you know, dead body management because we knew the epidemic you know, through the biology, through the science spreads very easily from contact, from contact to contact. Um, so really our focus during the Ebola crisis was on dead body management, making sure that we can do it in a dignified manner, but also in a safe manner. Um, we focused on hygiene protocols and we focused on treatment as well. Similarly, in this COVID response, we're focusing on risk communication, community engagement, behavioral change, looking into some of the consequences of the pandemic, which in Southern Africa or the whole of Africa, we're looking at, you know, people are losing their livelihoods, people are unsure whether they will, you know, still have a job at the end of it. There's a lot of gender-based violence in the communities. There's a lot of people that have taken to alcoholic alcoholism. Um, so all these factors, you know, goes beyond the pandemic itself. And that's what we collectively grapple with. Um, and really my experience um, in South Africa and the whole of Africa, you know, when we look at the COVID response and we say people should stay at home, people should wash their hands regularly, people should sanitize. The reality in some of the contexts that we work in, in the communities and even in the urban areas is that not everybody has a home. Um, so when we're saying stay at home, people, people, people cannot stay at home because, you know, they don't have a roof over their heads or their, their dwellings are so overcrowded that it's probably safer to go outside in the open air than, than, than to stay at home. So these are some of the things we grapple with and this is where we focus our resources and our energy just to bring some, some context and to bring some clarity um, to, to all this. So, you know, pandemics, epidemics, disaster management, that's what we do um, as the International Red Cross, looking into response, but also looking into developmental issues. And I'm really happy to have this conversation with yourselves and trying to bring more clarity in terms of what we do and how we operate. I, I, I do have a follow-up question on that because it's it's really interesting to see like that aspect of uh, adaptation to the community, um, to the community conditions, basically what you just mentioned. Um, we had a prime minister of a province here, um, a premier of a province here say, uh, forbid to homeless people to go outside which sounds really ridiculous, um, which really drives me to this question of uh, how do you adapt to those 
context where, for example, people live in like overcrowded dwellings or are homeless? Like, how do you adapt, um, you know, the stay at home, for example, idea to, to those contexts? Uh, what is the concrete result of that? How does that look? Yeah, they're very good questions. Um, and, you know, policies always need to be adapted. Policies are put in place, you know, at the regional context, at the, at the national context, or maybe at even the provincial context. Um, but it needs to be translated into action um, at the individual level. And this is what we do best, you know, taking policy into action. And, you know, when we tell people to, to, to stay home, we really need to look into the context. So if they don't have a home, how do we create an enabling environment for them to still be able to be safe and to still re, um, be able to um, ensure that they are keeping in line with the hygiene protocols. For example, in South Africa, very early on um, in Johannesburg, when we went to the homeless, um, we're educating them. But in terms of educating them about the hygiene protocols and about COVID, we also give food. So we had soup kitchens where we were able to you know, bring them in, make sure that they are fed, make sure that they are clothed, make sure that we give blankets but also be able to pass these messages. So we really try to embrace um, the community in, in its entirety. We really like to disaggregate in terms of, you know, different sections within the population. We are very, very inclusive in our approach and we ensure that, you know, we have different messages for different groups, but basically saying the same things in terms of the key messages. Um, but the approach is different in terms of how we 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 were able to tell them and how we're able to convey some of these messages. Furthermore, the beauty about the Red Cross is that being a community-based organization, policies are, as I said, are formulated at national levels, um, but we are able to, through our volunteers, translate it into a language and into an acceptable phrase that people will understand. And that is really, really, really important because behavioral change, you really need to do it with a, with a needed intention for it to gain traction. And really this COVID pandemic has been the, the biggest behavioral change challenge, but it's also been the biggest behavioral change success because getting millions and millions and millions of people to physical distance, to wear masks, to sanitize, to wash their hands is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an amazing thing that we've been able to do globally um, and collectively. Have we done enough? Certainly not. I mean, there's still so much more to be done and really we are trying as much as possible to rise to the challenge, to continue with the messaging, to continue with our actions on the ground and to continue to make sure that we defeat the pandemic, we learn from it, and we're able to prevent future ones. Thank I, you so much. I, do, do you have a follow-up question before I go on? Um, I, I, I do, like I have a burning question, actually. Okay, uh, okay great, go for it. Yeah, so you mentioned early on, um, Ebola and then, and then COVID. Um, and so I was really wondering why were we able to contain Ebola in Africa with, I would say, rudimentary materials and gears, and we were not able to contain COVID before it became a pandemic? 
I mean, good question. Um, and we'll have to look into the into the genesis of it and into some of the actions that were taken early on during the Ebola crisis. I remember in my country where I come from in Nigeria, um, when we did have one case of Ebola, and I think at the end of it, we had 11 cases altogether, there was definitely leadership. There was leadership from the very top and our government was really able to take the needed action um, to be able to um, um, you know, prevent further um, spreading of the virus. Um, in the countries that were affected, um, um, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, the government as well tried as much as possible to curtail it. I know the neighboring countries were also quite strict in terms of the protocols, in terms of border closures and all that. Um, the unfortunate thing about um, COVID is that, you know, the, the virus had really spread beyond, you know, what we could see and what we could curtail at an early stage. Um, and I know it took a lot of governments um, sometime before they could actually say, okay, this is now upon us. Let's start taking action. Let's start, you know, having lockdowns in place and let's start ensuring that we can protect, you know, our territories and our, and our various communities. And I think the, also the spread, it's, it's easier in terms of spreading COVID than, than Ebola, for example. You know, so, so these are some of the, you know, the, the, the dramatic things that we're seeing. Ebola usually came with symptoms. COVID not always comes with symptoms. So you could have somebody that is asymptomatic, but that can still infect others when it comes to COVID. With Ebola, you will get the symptoms. You will have sort of sweatiness. You will have the hemorrhagic fevers. You will have, you know, loss of appetite, vomiting, and all those things. In COVID, it's not always the case. And that's why, you know, we see people that we think, you know, might not have COVID. COVID, but they have COVID. So I think the general message is when it, whenever there's a pandemic or an epidemic, just treat everybody as infectious and protect yourself. And that's the only way we can really try to, you know, mitigate the spread as much as possible. If we just protect ourselves, if we listen to the hygiene protocols, and if we do what the scientists say, which are really simple, really easy, but again, it's about behavioral change and it's about really getting everybody to do it at the same time to protect each other. Thank you so much for really explaining that further. Um, now I wanna follow up by asking, obviously we know that this pandemic is obviously something that is very challenging for the continent and no doubt for organizations such as yours. The question, however, is that how do you then manage in the midst of all this or this current pandemic, and then also knowing that there are different other issues around the continent that might be inhibiting your ability to work effectively. And one example is unfortunately the very recent cyclone in, in Mozambique. How are you coping with these things? <laughs> very good question. And you know what we've always been praying for that is that we don't have any large scale disaster upon the pandemic. Um, but we only knew that that you know that was a matter of time it will come. Um, earlier on or late last year, we had the locust outbreak on the continent um, in East Africa and part of Southern Africa, you know, causing food insecurity. Um, now we have floods in you know practically the whole of Southern Africa, you know, resulting from cyclone Eloise. 
Um, so these, these are the things we grapple with, but as a community-based organization working with you know, 1.7 million volunteers on the continent, we have trained our volunteers. We have trained them to be agile, to be flexible, and to really be connected with the needs within the communities. And yes, you know, there's a pandemic. Yes, there's a disaster. But our, our thinking is and our, our action is we need to continue to build community resilience. And what is community resilience is basically the ability of the community members to build back better and to resist um, as much as possible the possible potential shocks. So there is a pandemic. There is another disaster within the cyclone. Do we forget the pandemic? Definitely not. Do we just focus on the, on the cyclone? Definitely not. So we, as much as possible, try to integrate our actions, our response in a way that we can make sure that the dollars that we're getting really goes to the last resort, really goes to the last um, person within the communities. We, we continue to position ourselves so that we reach the last mile. So although during the disaster, there are some hard to reach areas, we, we structure ourselves in such a way that we're able to, as soon as possible, um, get to those communities and are able to, um, to, to, to offer, offer a response. Because we're much better at predicting disasters, um, we have a concept we call forecast-based financing, which is a model that really anticipates disasters connected to the meteorological services. You know, we, 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 we know what's going to happen. So we, it's not a matter of you know, knowing what the weather will be, but we say it's a matter of knowing what the weather will do. And for cyclone in Lois, we did know that a cyclone was coming. So within the Red Cross movement, we're able to release funding. We're able to pre-position stocks, blankets, mosquito nets, jerry cans, hygiene kits, pre-position them before the disaster struck. So that as soon as the disaster strikes, you know, we're in, we're in action. And that is really the game changer. That is really the change we've been able to make in the last couple of years to say, let's be anticipatory instead of being reactive. And that saves lives. And that is really the essence of disaster response, really being there with the communities, accompanying them and making sure that we can build back better. And as the Red Cross movement, this is really what we do. And this is what wakes me up at night, during the morning to say, how can we support communities? How can we support individuals? And how can we build back better? So pandemic disaster management, yes, it's an opportunity to build back better. Um, it's also a challenge, um, to be honest, in terms of really making sure that all the pieces fit together. But that's why we're there. That's why I'm a humanitarian worker. And that's why I'm proud of what I do. Thank you so much for that response. And, and that is absolutely very important that obviously not just us, but our listeners also understand the complexities of the work you do. And that regardless of the fact that there is a pandemic, there are people out there on the front line risking their lives, their health, obviously knowing what we are facing currently and trying their best to make sure that the most vulnerable people in their communities get the help and support that they need. So thank you so much. So I guess- I mean, I'll, I'll just give you an, I'll just give you an example um, before, yeah. before you, you, um, you go on with the questions. Please. I mean, I was in, you know, in, in, in Mozambique during the cyclone Idai, which was like two years ago. 
Uh-huh. Uh, you know, some of the things we see in the communities is, you know, after a cyclone, obviously people are relocated. Um, and we saw in, in a particular school, the school of 15, 15 classrooms, um, we saw that, you know, there were 3,000 people during the day and 5,000 people at night um, within that school. Trying to, you know, get shelter, trying to make sure that, you know, they're protected from, from, from the cyclone and from the immediate aftermath. You know, what, what we need to understand is the consequences of that action. Number one, there's overcrowding. So, you know, other diseases will come in. Um, number two, there is issues of, you know, hygiene, sanitation, there's the issue of protection, especially of the children, of the women, you know, so these are the things we see and these are the things we try to work with the public authorities, other humanitarian organizations, so that we're able to mitigate. And with this cyclone that just happened, we, together with the government in Mozambique, were quickly able to identify um, many more schools, many more um, accommodation centers, um, quickly able to mobilize um, um, hygiene kits um, so that at least we're able to provide safe water. So, you know, we've learned a lot from the experiences of the past and we're making sure that with every new disaster, we're incorporating the lessons learned, we're being innovative, and we're at the end of the day trying as much as possible to give people humanitarian aid in a dignified manner. And I think that's really important for our audience to know um, that really, you know, disaster response or disaster management is quite complex, can be overwhelming, but there's a methodology to it that we consistently follow um, and and we, we try to get on top of it as soon as possible. Thank you so much for that clarification. I, I, I appreciate it. And, and I think the key message there is obviously that you learn lesson. I mean, everything is an opportunity for you to learn and hopefully um, use the lessons you've learned and, and, and be better when something else happens in the future. So thank you for the clarification. I guess my next question would obviously be around, especially now, the issue of how challenging things are and how you are better able to work with the government, especially with respect to educating the communities about, I guess, the realness of COVID. Do you find that you find challenges, especially in certain communities where people actually think that this is not as, as real as, 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 as we're making it to seem, or is it easy for you to educate people about what they need to do to ensure that they avoid this this um, issue, this health from happening to them. And if I can add to that question, uh, just a little, another little piece of context, because we're we're talking about African countries as well, uh, a matter of prioritization as well. Like, how is it difficult for communities to perceive COVID as a priority versus their daily priorities? when it comes to going to work, when it comes to actually making money to survive in, in so many of these communities? I mean, I think very, very good questions. Um, and I'll try to link the questions in terms of, um, you know, the, the issues and is it easy to convince? Um, you know, early on in the first wave, I'll say it was quite difficult um, to, to get the messages across, not because we couldn't, but because people were not changing as, as, as we wanted in terms of their behaviors. You know, very early on, you would hear phrases like, 
you know, if you drink alcohol, you won't get COVID. If you stay out in the sun, you won't get COVID. COVID is um, a disease of the Westerners and it shouldn't affect us as Africans. Um, COVID is something that happens in rural areas and not in urban areas. So you get all sorts of things. Um, but our constant message was that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter whether you're young, old, boy, girl, man, woman, um, rural, urban, you know, COVID is real. And I think with the second wave, it's, it's, it's really hit home more because COVID is now nearer to many people. I think I've asked many, 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 many people within my circle, do you know somebody that has COVID? And almost everybody says yes. Within the first wave, it wasn't like that. So yes, behavioral change is always, always difficult. Um, but nonetheless, we will continue to persevere. We will continue to pass on the right messages in a language and in an acceptable way that people will understand. So it's challenging, definitely, but we work with government, we work with other humanitarian actors to make sure that we pass on consistent messages. Where people tend to you know, be misled is if the messages are not consistent or if the messages are contradictory. That's why, you know, in a big crisis, in a big pandemic, um, there's always a working group within the countries that will really look into the messaging and make sure that it is um, unified in a way that can be passed on to people and that is not confusing. So we are part of that process, working with, with, the, with the public authorities and with the other humanitarian actors. Now, when we look at priorities, again, you know, linking it to the first wave, especially on the continent, you know, people, people are looking for food, people are looking for jobs, people are looking for safety, people are looking, you know, to send their children to school. Now on top of that, COVID came. Was COVID a priority? You know, people would say, yes, I could get COVID, but, you know, maybe I won't get it and I can just continue to live my daily life in terms of trying to put food on the table. So the priorities are multifaceted. Even till now, and it's difficult to say, you know, what is the one main priority? I think, you know, everybody in the world wants the same thing, whether you're in the urban area, the rural area, whether you're young or old. You know, people want to put food on the table. People want to shelter over their heads. Um, people want to send their kids to school and people want a dignified life. <coughs> that's, that's basic, you know, humanity. Now we have COVID that has come and disrupted that. Um, and that is the constant challenge that we're facing in terms of what do we prioritize as human beings? Do I stay at home and go hungry? Or do I try to fend for myself in a way that I do it in a safe way, but still be able to provide for, the, for, for, for my family? And that's what governments are grappling with. And that's what many individuals are grappling with. You know, my philosophy has always been the concept of Ubuntu, and we say that a lot in Southern Africa, Ubuntu. I am because you are, I exist because you exist. And if I don't take care of my neighbor, um, nobody will take care of me. So how do we go back to the old African way of communal living and making sure that we're able to take care of ourselves as a community? And really COVID, um, this pandemic has taught me a lot um, personally. It's taught me to be grateful for what we have, to be thankful 
um, and to reach out, to reach out because not everybody is as privileged as I have been, as lucky as I have been not to have had it. Um, but also a lot of people are requesting for, for support. And, you know, we, for me personally, I've learned that, you know, one needs to, to give even more than one was doing in the past because we're all in this together. And if we think, you know, I'm more privileged than the other, it's definitely wrong. And that brings me to the issue of vaccines as well that you know, we're now going into the next phase of vaccines. And to be honest, the world will not be protected until everybody gets the vaccine. You know, so there are some nations that are you know, hoarding it and saying, you know, this is just for my people. You know, the reality is the virus is very, very intelligent and will continue to mutate, will continue to adapt. So if we leave a geographical group out and say we're not vaccinating them on the continent or they're not a priority, the virus will mutate. It's a, it's, it's a global village now. People will travel you know, all over the place and the virus will continue to spread. So I think for me, the key message is we're in this together. And as a, as a human global village, we need to try to find a global solution to the problem and not individual solutions to the problem. Hope I answered your question in a in a long way. Absolutely, you did, and 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 it's a very powerful message that you've given us in the end. We are we are literally in this together, and and the need for obviously making sure that the 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 countries that would usually find it very challenging to get access to the vaccine, unfortunately, many of whom, or which are in the African continent, there is actually a global responsibility to ensure that everyone gains access rather than the rich and powerful countries holding it. So thank you so much for that. Dihia? Yes, I'm really in awe, especially of the concept of Ubuntu, because it's, um, it's really something that fascinates me. You know, we hear a lot about how Africa um, is somewhat well equipped in terms of um, preparedness, I would say, because of the Ebola epidemic. Like, um, you know, if we fought Ebola, we could fight, that, that's the concept of it. If we fought Ebola, we could fight uh, COVID. And from what I see, and it will lead to a question, from what I see, the numbers of cases, the number of cases in all around the African continent isn't as high as in other places in the world. And I was wondering um, to, for, like as an answer to our audience, why is, why is that? Is it because of you know, um, this preparedness, this sense of community? Is it because of some people say the weather? Um, why is that? Why is it not as high? Or is it a matter of statistical recording? I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of unknown with COVID, to be honest. Um, you know, there's so many things that we assume, but we're not sure of. Um, you know, why, why did it come in the first wave weaker in, in Africa? Um, or why is the second wave much more infectious um, globally? Um, I mean, there, there are a few factors. Um, yes, I think Africa 
you know, the, the, the first wave was in Asia, then he moved to Europe, moved to America, then came to Africa. So Africa got a head start in terms of preparedness. Um, so that could be one of the factors. The other factor could be, you know, the statistics, as you said, you know, are, are we testing enough? If we compare some of the European countries in terms of testing to some of the African countries, um, you know, we're not testing as much when it comes to proportionality, depending on the population size. So that's another factor. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the numbers can, can be explained in such a multifaceted way. And I don't think we will really get a true understanding until much later, probably even after the pandemic, because every day we're learning new things. And those new things continue to influence the way we work, the way we behave. You know, people are saying, you know, the African continent, because we have malaria and we've been taking, you know, the malaria drugs, it doesn't affect Africans as much. Now, studies are ongoing, but nothing has been proven definitely yet in terms of why do we have less numbers on the continent. But what I can assure you is that what we are seeing is that the second wave has been definitely more infectious than the first wave, especially on the continent. Um, from the figures we're seeing and from the amount of mortality we're seeing as well. So again, you know, it's not an easy answer or this or that answer. It's really complicated. It's really multifaceted. And we will not get a true understanding because as we are trying to get ahead of the virus, the virus is also trying to get ahead of us. You know, you know, in, you know, in South Africa, we have a new strain, which has, you know, and there's a new strain in, 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 in the UK as well. But again, that has spread to other countries. Um, so what does that mean exactly? You know, what's what, what influenced that new strain and how can we avoid it? You know, so it, it's, it's still a lot, a lot of discussions, a lot of science um, that we don't understand. And the scientists are really working day and night to try to get ahead of it. You know, but the message remains the same. We need to physical distance. We need to wear our masks. We need to make sure that we you know, wash our hands regularly and we need to make sure that we sanitize. The message is the same, irregardless of how virulent, how you know, easily spread the, the, the virus is, the message is consistent and we need to continue to reinforce that. And, and how do people, like you mentioned earlier, the vaccine, how do people react to that in uh, where you work? In South Africa, um, for example? Are they eager for the to uh, for the vaccine, or is there some reluctance? I mean, you 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 get you know different different schools of thought as well. There are people that are saying the vaccines are harmful. They want to kill Africans. They want to do this. They want to do that. Again, we go by the science um, as 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 the Red Cross. Um, we go by the science, and we go with you know the the experience from countries that again have started their vaccination campaigns um, nationally. Um, and we see the reactions there. And we, with, with any vaccination, you will get people that react um, adversely um, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the vaccine. The question is, what is the percentage of those people that react? It's really, really negligible in most instances. Um, and again, because you know, this vaccine has, has, been, has, has been produced at a short space of time, you know, people are a little bit skeptical, um, you know, no doubt. Um, but then again, what is the better option? 
is the better option to be in this situation for the next you know, couple of years? Or is the better option to say, let's vaccinate, um, let's learn from the process, um, and let's assure our colleagues and our nation that you know, there is no conspiracy theories um, to the vaccine and the vaccine rollout. Um, and I think, again, it's not easy yeah, because there's a lot of theories that are flying out there, um, both supporting the vaccines and people and theories that are against the vaccine. So it's really to navigate through these complexities and you know, to work with the, with, the, with, the, with the public officials, with the ministries of health, with the countries, and see how you know, we can promote as much as possible um, the uptake of these vaccines in a way that will not jeopardize the, you know, the healthcare systems of the country and the, and the, and the health of, of the individuals as well. And I think if people can be assured that their health are not compromised by them taking the vaccines, then I think the uptake will be much more. But again, it's a process. It's not something that we can just say people take vaccines and they will. I'm hoping that the majority will. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the ones that are a little bit, you know, need more, more information can be given that information as time goes on so that um, we're able to protect the population at large. Thank you so much. Um, so I have another question and, and perhaps this is us trying to sort of round up the discussion, but the question I'd like to ask now, obviously, is that the vaccine is one thing and, and we're hoping that the global communities and hopefully the, the, the right people are listening and they will do the needful in ensuring that this vaccine gets to everyone and it's treated as a matter of um, urgency in terms of making sure it gets to everyone because if it doesn't get to everyone, if, if the people that need it do not get vaccinated, then the world will remain sick, given that, as you said, we're in a global village. But the next question I'd like to ask, therefore, is whether you have any advice for the African government, and in fact, their international partners, about managing pandemics and disasters. Because the reality is that even without this pandemic, there, there was always something going on in the continent. And even outside the, the cyclone we talked about in Mozambique, there's this also threat of, of terrorism in the country. So what advice do you have for the African government and their international partners around these issues? I mean, good, good, good question. Um, you know, pan pandemics, um, another pandemic will happen. Um, so we need to learn from this and what can we learn from it? Um, and what would be my advice to, to you know, our, our leaders? First of all, we need to ensure that, you know, there's health for all. I mean, we're in the 21st century and, you know, if people don't have access to basic clean water, there's a problem. You know, so I think we need to go back to the drawing board how can we provide the barest minimum, at least for our population, in terms of education? That is important. Educating not only the boy child, but educating the girl child. Um, because people say, and there's an African proverb, if you educate a man, you educate an individual. If you educate a woman, you educate a community, you educate a nation. So I think, again, education is a priority. Healthcare is a priority. 
making sure that people have access to healthcare. And there's now this um, concept of universal health coverage, meaning everybody should have at least you know, access to healthcare. We need to learn from this experience and we need to prioritize. And I think, yes, there are many priorities. <laughs> you can talk about electricity, education, infrastructure, you know, security, all those. There are many priorities, no doubt. But how do we make sure we look at the low hanging fruit? Um, how do we make sure we prioritize those and you know, consistently continue to build upon you know, some of the successes? And I think if we can give ourselves time to do that, then definitely we'll be able to you know, prepare for the next pandemic. We have the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals, I believe. You know, how do we start continuing to work on them? Look at people's livelihoods, create jobs. If you create jobs, you'll be able to create opportunities for people to go to school. If people are able to go to school, they'll be able to thrive. Their communities will be able to thrive. So really looking at the whole chain as a continuum rather than really looking at them in silos. And my advice, concrete advice, you know, to our governments, to our leaders is, you know, the, the future of Africa is in our hands. Nobody is going to come and do it for us. We need to do it ourselves and we need to get on the train and start doing the right things um, so that in a couple of years we can live back a generation that will thank us and say, yes, you know, our generation did it and they will be able to do it for the next generation. We need to start now. We cannot start tomorrow. It has to be now. That is a beautiful message to wrap up the, um, the podcast today. Um, we really, really appreciate your answers. I learned so many things today. I don't know about you, Ife, but I have learned so many things today. Um, myself being African, um, you know, I, I'm aware of all the conspiracy theories here as well in Canada as well. So I really appreciate your answers, your honest and very well guided answers on this one. Yeah. Thank you so very much. I want to re-echo what um, Didi has said. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our audience will feel the same way. And thank you for taking out time of your busy schedule and we know how late it is where you are. And yeah, thank you so very much for being part of this conversation. Thank you very much, um, Ife and Dihia. It's been wonderful, um, you know, chatting with you you know, getting the audience to listen to me. Um, you know, we remain available for any questions, obviously, um, you know, from a Red Cross, Red Crescent perspective, and really looking forward to, to a brighter future and to us defeating this pandemic together. Thank you again. And thanks to our audience for listening to us. Yeah, thank you so much and, and have a blessed days and weeks and, and months ahead. Bye. Bye.